Welcome this second Sunday of Lent to Queen Anne Lutheran Church proclaiming the love of God in Christ for every person. Whether you're a first-time visitor, a long-time member, or somewhere in between, we are absolutely glad you're here. A few reminders, as always, before we begin our service. First, please silence your phones as a gift to yourself and to your neighbor. Next, we are going to ask that you remain masked um, again for today's service. Soon, uh, that policy will likely be changing, in which case, if you wish to continue to uh, wear a mask, you will be more than welcome to do so, but you will not be required to do so. Um, my hope is for Easter, but that uh, remains to be determined by uh, the leadership of the church. Finally, uh, we are going to continue to sit or kneel during the intercessory prayers. You'll be invited to, to do so uh, at that time. And lastly, an audio recording, as always, is available of today's service. That is now being posted on Tuesday morning. If you know of someone who would like to listen to the service, please direct them to our website. It's one thing to affirm Jesus's humanity, as we did last week, to show how God in Christ accepts limitation and vulnerability to join us in our struggles. As a human being, Jesus walks in our shoes. But what happens then to his divinity? If Jesus was fully human, how in any way can he be truly divine? How can he be what one theologian calls God for us? Today, we invite you to take another opportunity for Lenten reflection. When it comes to Jesus, who do you say he is? Our gathering hymn is number 330, Seed That in Earth is Dying. Please rise as you are able.
Our service continues with the apostolic greeting on page two. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. In peace, let us pray to the Lord. For the peace from above and for our salvation, let us pray to the Lord. For the peace of the whole world, for the well-being of the church of God, and for the unity of all, let us pray to the Lord. For this holy house, and for all who offer here their worship and praise, let us pray to the Lord. Help, save, comfort, and defend us, gracious Lord. Amen. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Let us pray. God of grace, in Christ you reconcile the world to yourself. Gather all peoples into your arms and enable us to experience your mercy, that we may rejoice in the life we share in your Son, Jesus Christ, the pioneer of our salvation, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Please be seated. God promises a childless and doubting Abram that he will have a child, that his descendants will be as numerous as the stars, and that the land of Canaan will be their inheritance. Abram's trust in God is sealed with a covenant-making ceremony, a sign of God's promise. A reading from Genesis. After these words, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, that will you give me, for I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no offspring, and so a slave born in my house is to be my heir. But the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. No one but your very own issue shall be your heir. He brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and count the stars, if you are able to count them. Then he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. Then he said to him, 
I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. He brought him all these and cut them in two, laying each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and a deep and terrifying darkness descended upon him. When the sun had gone down, and it was dark, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. The word of the Lord.
Although Paul's devotion to Christ has caused him to be persecuted, he does not regret the course he has taken. Writing from prison, he expresses confidence in a glorious future and encourages other Christians to follow in his footsteps. A reading from Philippians. Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me and observe those who live according to the example you have in us. For many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. I've often told you of them, and now I tell you even with tears. Their end is destruction, their God is the belly, and their glory is in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and it is from there that we are expecting a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humiliation that it may be conformed to the body of his glory by the power that also enables him to make all things subject to himself. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, my love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, my beloved. Word of the Lord. Please rise for the reading of the gospel. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 13th chapter. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to Jesus, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. He said to them, Go and tell that fox for me, listen, I am casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I finish my work. Yet today, tomorrow, and the next day, I must be on my way, because it is impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children under, together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you. And I tell you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. The Gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. Grace to you and peace from God, who is the source of life, and from Jesus, who is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. Last week, I posed to you a question, one that Jesus asks of his disciples. Who do you say he is? Who do you say he is? While the crowds of the time sympathetic to his message viewed him as the return of a prophet like Jeremiah or Elijah, 
Many people today equate him with Superman. They see him as an otherworldly, heavenly being, someone who has nothing to do with us, as the, Dor as the theologian Dorothe Zola puts it, someone who sees, hears, and can do everything. Now, if Zola is right, if people often think of Jesus as fundamentally different than the rest of us, a perfect being from another world, I have another question for you. How is it that Jesus came to be viewed this way? Zola offers one answer. She attributes this view of Jesus to the churchly language we use in our hymns and worship services. This is what we get, she says, for speaking of Jesus as Messiah, Lord, Son of God, King of Kings, or as the Nicene Creed says, God from God. A superhero, one who promises to save us when we can no longer save ourselves. The trouble in speaking of Jesus as a heavenly being is that it not only makes him irrelevant to our lives, it also sets us up for disappointment, deep disappointment. What happens, for example, when the superhero we expected to save us in times of trouble never shows up, at least not in any way we anticipated? The inadequacy of equating Jesus with Superman requires, therefore, a corrective. We need to rediscover Jesus' humanity to plant his feet firmly on the ground. In so doing, I believe, the good news will become more apparent to us. Here is how I see it. By descending into the flesh of Christ, God joins us in our limitations our struggles, our challenges, and even in the anxiety we have over death. God in Christ, as a human being, walks in our shoes. He is the Son of Man, not Superman. He doesn't simply solve our problems. Instead, he joins us as we face them, giving us the power, as the Apostle Paul testifies, to do all things as the one who strengthens us. That's from Philippians 4.13, one of my favorite lines in the New Testament. Our affirmation of Christ's full humanity, however, raises a challenge. If Christ was indeed human, then in what way was he divine? Do we have any alternative for describing the presence of God within him other than the churchly language we mentioned earlier, the kind that makes him irrelevant to our lives by speaking of him as a heavenly being who flies around up there somewhere, who, to cite Paul from our second reading, then swoops down only on the last day of creation to rescue us from our problems? What if we have no alternative for speaking of Christ's divinity at the expense here of his humanity? Maybe we should give up referring to him as divine altogether. Maybe we should let it go. After all, we have considerable precedent in the Gospels 
for understanding Jesus as the last in a long line of prophets, that is, human beings who function as messengers of God. Consider, for example, Luke's gospel. This gospel portrays Jesus almost from the beginning as a prophet, as a mere human being. Recall what happens, for example, when he reads the scroll of Isaiah in the synagogue of his hometown at the beginning of his public ministry. Jesus tells the people Isaiah's prophecy regarding the appearance of a liberator refers to him. Then he adds that like the prophets of old, they will reject him, which is exactly what they do by chasing him out and then nearly driving him off a cliff. Not exactly the best first day of ministry. Jesus' response confirms his identity. No prophet, he says, is accepted in his hometown. No prophet, no human being. Luke 13, our gospel reading for today, once again has Jesus present himself as a prophet, a messenger of God. When the Pharisees warn Jesus that Herod wants to kill him, Jesus sends them back with a clear message. You tell that fox, I answer to a higher authority. Now, let me be very clear. This is not a compliment. As commentator Jeremy Williams explains, foxes in both Greek and rabbinic literature were depicted as crafty, sinister creatures. Even today, we think of foxes as sly and cunning. By casting aside the warning of the Pharisees, Jesus insists that Herod, the provincial governor of Galilee, will not hinder his work of casting out demons like Legion, who represent military might. Jesus' reference to himself as a hen that seeks to gather her chicks, the little ones of Jerusalem, under her wing serves to confirm his identity in opposition to Herod. He seeks to protect the less fortunate, the downtrodden, the oppressed who had gathered in Jerusalem. Herod, on the other hand, is the proverbial fox in the hen house who criminalizes and destroys truth-tellers. The fact that Jesus will die in Jerusalem confirms his prophetic, that is, human, identity. God's messengers may be relatively safer in the countryside, but in Jerusalem, the big city, their chances of survival are considerably less. That may be the reason why he says prophets die in Jerusalem. But wait, you say to yourself, isn't Jesus more than a prophet? After all, according to today's gospel, he casts out demons and cures people. What kind of prophet can do that? What kind of prophet can perform deeds of power or miracles? Well, one need only think of the prophet Elisha to answer in the affirmative. He was famous for performing miracles, for being a wonder worker. In one case, he fed 100 people with 20 loaves of bread and some left over. 
a story you'll recognize insofar as the gospel writers clearly reframed it to show how Jesus surpassed his predecessors by feeding not 100 people, but 5,000 people with an even smaller amount of food. Like Jesus, who cursed a fig tree and made it barren for no apparent reason, Elisha had his days off days too. According to 2 Kings, when a group of boys made fun of Elisha for being bald, the prophet cursed them in the name of the Lord. Just then, we read, two female bears sprang out of the forest and mauled 42 of the boys. Thankfully, <laughs> Jesus had hair. But more seriously, we should clarify that he used his powers to help and heal the less fortunate and a, as a manifestation of God's emerging kingdom. And you can never separate the miracles from the kingdom Jesus is bringing about. Unlike Elisha, he never used miracles to harm others, even if the harming was perhaps to some degree justified. The fact that prophets like Elisha could also be wonder workers nevertheless illustrates something important about Jesus. He may have been greater than his predecessors, but his uniqueness was only one of degree, not kind. Let me explain that. Saying Jesus is different in degree is a fancy way of saying that he surpassed those who came before him in terms of his abilities, even though he remained, if I may quote one of the agents from the Matrix movies, only human. What separates Jesus then from his predecessors in kind rather than degree? Luke 13, 32 offers us a preliminary clue. There we recall Jesus tells the Pharisees that he will continue healing people of their diseases today, tomorrow, and the third day when he will finish his work, or, and I prefer this translation, when he will be completed. Here, the completion of the third day for a Christian reader shouts resurrection. Jesus, we learn, has a destiny different from his predecessors. According to Paul, his true identity was confirmed when God raised him from the dead as the first fruits of God's new creation. That's what sets Jesus apart. At that point, he was declared son of God instead of merely a prophet. You can see Romans 1.4, for example. Of course, other writers in the New Testament will extend his status as the Son of God all the way back to the beginning of his ministry, the Gospel of Mark, to his birth, the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, or to the beginning of everything, the Gospel of John. But all these writers had to work backwards, as Paul did, from the resurrection. That God raised him sets him apart, confirming him as the Son of God who enjoyed a special relationship with God. I wonder, however, if there is another clue regarding Jesus' divinity. So what have I said so far? He was considered in the Gospel of Luke a prophet. One might think he's differentiated by the miracles he performs, but we see in the Old Testament in the example of Elisha and others that prophets could also perform miracles. So what separates him apart, if anything? Well, his resurrection. His special destiny is the first fruits of a new creation. 
So we know some of his predecessors were believed to be wonder workers. That's clear. What else might set him apart? We believe, as we affirm today in the Nicene Creed, that the same spirit manifest in him spoke through the prophets that lived before he did. But Jesus exhibits something else, something often lacking in the accounts we have of his predecessors. And this is the takeaway I want to leave with you. Consider again the last two verses of our gospel reading for today, Luke 13, 34 to 35. I want you to notice there Jesus' disposition. How often, he says, have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under his wings, he says, with profound compassion. Jesus' compassion toward others surfaces repeatedly, in fact, throughout the stories we have of him. Consider Mark 10, 17 to 22, the story of the rich man. Here is a person who has fulfilled all the duties of his religious tradition, yet one who still yearns for something more. Good teacher, he asks Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Mark gives us exquisite insight into Jesus' disposition. Instead of immediately prescribing a formula for his salvation, the text says Jesus looked at him and loved him. Wow. We see the same thing at the foot of the cross according to John's gospel. There, even in the hour of his greatest agony, Jesus looks to the well-being of others. Woman, he says to his mother, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple whom he loved, here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home to care for her. I believe there is something of God here in Jesus' disposition toward his mother, toward the disciple whom he loved, and toward the rich man seeking eternal life. John's gospel tells us that the word became flesh and lived among us. But I prefer to say that due to his disposition, love became flesh and lived among us. For God is love, and Jesus is love incarnate as his disposition toward others confirms. Can you imagine if his, if his speech was filled otherwise with language of hate and constant destruction? What kind of a Messiah would that be to follow? No, in the Gospels we have the accounts of a man who was compassionate toward others and in his compassion and care for others reflected something of God in him accordingly. Indeed, as Lloyd Gearing points out in Reimagining God, Jesus was unique in this way. He teaches not only that we should love our neighbor, he says we should also love our enemies. And as far as Gearing is concerned, that is the first time in world history someone has taught that. That it's not just about loving the people you know. It's about loving the people you know and don't like. There is no greater expression of love in the history of human civilization. Dorothy Zola puts it well, after contending as I have, that we need to recover Jesus' humanity to draw him down from heaven and make him relevant to our lives. 
She sees divinity beaming through that same humanity. How? It shines through his disposition, she says, his way of being there for others. He let his light shine through himself, she writes. He did not hide it in the depths of his soul. He gave it out. He was, as Bonhoeffer says, the man for others because he was the man of God and knew himself to be so borne up by God that he did not fall out of God even when he felt himself abandoned by God, particularly in his crucifixion. What if we were to act toward others the way God in Christ acts toward us? Are we not, after all, called, as Martin Luther says, to be Christ's to one another, little Christ's, in the fashion of the one who is the Christ? Are we not called to seek Christ in others, as Matthew 25 says, especially the less fortunate? Perhaps Christ is born every time we live for others as he did. Perhaps that's why history cannot erase his name. For every time we tend to a neighbor in need or look out for someone in need, we manifest his presence just as he manifested the very presence of God in his way of being toward others. This Lent, I invite you to continue pondering the question I asked at the beginning. Who do you say Jesus is? In the Apostles' Creed, we affirm his humanity. In the Nicene Creed, we affirm his divinity. In our lives, we affirm his humanity and divinity when we live as he did, not simply for ourselves, as our culture tells us, but as people who exist for others. May God inspire all of us to live accordingly. Amen.
Let us confess together the words of our faith in the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again. In accordance with the scriptures, he is centered into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Please be seated, or if you wish, kneel for the prayers of the church. Drawn close to the heart of God, we offer these prayers for the church, the world, and all who are in need. You gather the church into a community of mercy and grace. Unify Christians around the globe in efforts to proclaim good news, even in the face of opposition. Lord, in your mercy. You create and sustain the entire universe, calling it good. Hinder those who would cause further destruction to our planet and strengthen those who advocate for thoughtful stewardship of the Earth's resources. Lord, in your mercy. You raise up leaders committed to love and justice. Encourage those who must stand up in injustice and violence, especially the people living in Ukraine. Be with all who suffer from oppression and keep us aware of their plight so that we may do whatever we can to help. Lord, in your mercy. You hear us when we cry to you. Attend to those expecting a child and console those who have experienced miscarriage. Comfort veterans who endure post-traumatic stress. Shield those endangered by domestic violence. Uphold all who are ill or grieving. Lord, in your mercy. You kindle our faith and call us into action. 
guide families preparing for baptism, empower Sunday school teachers, confirmation leaders, and parents who share their faith with younger generations. Give us all a renewed sense of vocation. Lord, in your mercy. For whom or what else do the people of God pray? Be with the Schoenberg family on the deathbed. The father Bob Schoenberg. Lord, in your mercy. Through our prayer. Loving-kindness, we pray for Phoebe's friend Jewel, for Ken facing cardiac surgery this week, for Sherry, for Betty. We pray for David, for the family of Pam, for Ben, for Almaz's mother Awatosh and brother Mulugeta, for Mindy, for my friend Jim's family, may he rest in peace, for Peter, for Sherry, Lee, Jim, Deb, Barbara, Mary, Jan, Barb, Carol, Ruth, Denny, and Hildy. Lord, in your mercy. Hear our prayer. You receive us by your embrace when our lives come to an end. We give thanks for those whose lives were gifts to us, those who have fallen asleep, trusting that they now rest in you. On the final day, gather all of us with them in your loving arms. Lord, in your mercy. Accept the prayers we bring, O God, on behalf of a world in need, for the sake of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please rise now as you are able for the great thanksgiving. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is indeed right, our duty and our joy, that we should at all times and in all places give thanks and praise to you. Almighty and merciful God, through our Savior, Jesus Christ, you call your people to cleanse their hearts and prepare with joy for the Paschal Feast that renewed in the gift of baptism we may come to the fullness of your grace. And so with all the choirs of angels, with the church on earth and the hosts of heaven, we praise your name and join their unending hymn. 
In the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread and gave thanks, broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body given for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. Again, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks and gave it for all to drink saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for all people for the forgiveness of sin. Do this for the remembrance of me. Lord, inspire us to work toward your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Save us from the time of trial and deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. All baptized Christians are invited to participate in the Lord's Supper. If you wish to receive, I invite you to take out your communable and follow my directions. Christ is among us. Receive the bread of life. This is his body broken for you. This is his blood shed for you. Let us pray. We give you thanks, gracious God, for the love you show us in this meal. Send us to bring good news to a hurting world and to proclaim your favor to all, strengthened with the richness of your grace in your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Please be seated briefly for announcements. Once again, welcome to Queen Anne Lutheran Church. It's wonderful to see you here this morning. If you are a visitor, we invite you to fill out a Connect card in front of you. There are also prayer cards if you wish to offer a prayer request. If you would like to uh, participate in Ukraine Relief Action, we have directions uh, in the uh, announcements. There are several Lutheran agencies that are uh, helping administer humanitarian aid. You can give to uh, some of those, and in some cases there are matching donations provided. So please prayerfully consider uh, that opportunity. 
Uh, for several of you, there is acolyte training after our service today. So if there is anyone else who's interested, we would love to uh, uh, see you there. My hope is that for the main part of the church year from... I guess I would say from Advent to uh, the end of Easter, we have acolytes that help uh, reveal and show the, the importance of all of us uh, participating in the worship service in various ways. So uh, that is at 11.45. Uh, there are staff vacations listed there in the bulletin as well. I'll be away next Sunday. Um, Pastor Mel Jacob will be here, and so will... Uh, Dr. Matt Whitlock, who will give the third talk on crucifixion theater of the absurd. I know I'm biased, but the first two of these have been absolutely fantastic, absolutely eye-opening. They're already giving me a lot of uh, food for thought, and I am sure others uh, who were present as well. So if you would like, I certainly encourage you to attend. You can do so either in person here at the conference room next Sunday at 9 o'clock, or via Zoom, and Dr. Whitlock will also provide a review to catch you up if you weren't able to make the first and or second sessions. In addition to our forum, we also have this coming Wednesday, uh, the next uh, Wednesdays in Lent, uh, evening Zoom worship on Zoom. This is a brief midweek devotional service meant to help you cultivate your spirituality and uh, dive deeper into reflecting about the meaning of of Christ, and in this case, thinking about our spirituality. So we are going to be reading excerpts from the writings of Archbishop Desmond Tutu, and that will be at 7.30 this coming Wednesday via Zoom. So please join us if you can. Two things finally. The church happens because of its volunteers, and we have two opportunities uh, for volunteers. One is to help get childcare going. Kathy Unseth has graciously offered to take that up, but she would like some assistance, so if you would prayerfully consider that. It's uh, minimal responsibility. We see, simply need somebody to help coordinate uh, our daycare uh, during the services. And then uh, there has been some interest in live streaming, so if you or someone you might know would be interested in, in championing this cause and taking it forward, that would be wonderful. You can speak with me or with a member of council. Are there any other announcements for the good of the congregation? Then I invite you please to rise for the benediction. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with favor and grant you peace. Our sending hymn, How Small Our Span of Life, is number 336.